Wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track? Then stay tuned while industry veteran Pat Cothy shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry. Now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device. Welcome. This is one in a two-episode look at medical school. I wanted to give you two different perspectives from two different types of schools and from two different students who took different paths. In the previous episode, my guest provided a look at what it was like to attend an osteopathic school where you earn a DO degree, and he did that on a U.S. military scholarship. In this episode, my guest is Nicholas Alana, and Nicholas shares what it was like to attend an allopathic school where you earn an MD degree. Nicholas attends the University of Texas Health Science Center, Joe and Teresa Lozano Long School of Medicine in San Antonio. This school annually educates more than 900 students and 800 residents. I've known Nicholas since he was seven years old and watched as his path towards medicine has developed. I think you'll find this conversation interesting as he talks about the way medical school and classroom work in particular is much different than what you would probably expect. Here's my conversation with Nicholas. Nicholas, almost yeah. done with almost done with medical school. What is it? Was it what you expected it to be? Yes and no. There's there's been a lot of things I've expected along the way. A lot of things that totally took me by surprise and a lot of things I kind of learned on the fly. Didn't think I was going to be in this position now, kind of just like waiting, uh, kind of uh, limited here by the pandemic, my final year, fourth year of medical school, um, pretty much wrapped up at this point and just, just waiting, counting the months down at this point until, until I finally make it to graduation. Did it go fast? Uh, I feel like it lasted four years. It didn't speed <laughs> up for me. I would say it didn't feel fast. It didn't feel slow either. Feel it felt just right. It, it's time. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, you, you look back at it and you, and you think four years went fast, but they really didn't go fast. Uh, yeah. You had a lot of things that, that occurred during that period of time. So let's, uh, let, let's kind of go back a little bit. What sparked your interest in medicine? Kind of what, what happened and, and uh, about what age? Ever since I was probably you know, a teenager, I was really interested in big into lifting weights and working out and athletics. And so I wanted a career that was going to combine these kind of things and wanted a career where ultimately I was going to be able to help people. That's kind of where the initial workings began as a, in my high school years. Got to college, majored in all the basic sciences as a biology major, got into the nitty gritty of, of biology, biochemistry and chemistry, and was kind of fascinated learning about these kind of processes more at the, the molecular, you know, that fundamental basic science level. And so this is all kind of a storm here, you know, sophomore, junior year, you're kind of deciding what, what it is you want to do. And my dad suffered a pretty serious uh, car accident and ultimately had a pretty severely dislocated fracture of his neck and had a pretty substantial injury and recovery process. And during this time, he worked with a doctor known as a physiatrist, also known as a physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I was just kind of Googling and learning a little bit more about what those kind of doctors do. 
and seeing the impact he made on my dad's recovery got me really interested in, in that field of medicine because it took that musculoskeletal and neuro neurological components of of my interests and so like a real big part of the field and it was also a career where I was going to be able to help people and that's kind of what got got me into medicine and ultimately PM&R which is the specialty I'll be pursuing in residency starting in May. Is there any medical professionals uh, in your family? I, I'll be the first one so no no one in medicine before me um, which I, I kind of like it that way though I'm going get to get to be the first one kind of figuring things out on my own and it's not not any kind of path or, or example from personal example for me to follow. So your first experience came from athletics and the uh, different physicians and athletic trainers and uh, physical therapists. What types of things occurred in your athletic career that, uh, that decided you to treat, uh, have treatment? Right. So my junior year of high school uh, during a football game or last game of the regular season, I tore, tore the meniscus in my right knee. And at, at that time, I was had to have surgery about a week after that injury, and the orthopedic surgeon that performed the surgery ultimately decided to re repair uh, the meniscus, so he actually sewed it back together. Basically, meant a better long-term prognosis, but kind of the short-term would a mu much more extensive rehabilitation course. I was working with uh, a physical therapist, essentially one-on-one, -on -one, three days a week for a span of about three months. During that time, we got to know each other on a more personal level and you know, just got to talk to him a little bit about what, hit, what made him go into in the physical therapy, what, what the kind of satisfaction he's getting from helping these patients. And that kind of sparked that initial interest in that career where I'd be able to help people. Not only that, I was, I was the patient at this point. I was seeing the difference that he was making in, in my life and helping me gain function of this knee again, strengthen my knee again, and then ultimately helping me get back to the level of athletic performance I wanted to have again. Were you able to get back? We, we made it back and had a, had a great senior season the next season after that, where uh, my high school won, won the state championship here in Texas. Let's talk about the academics in high school and how it prepared you for college uh, and also kind of the balancing of academics and, and athletics. Right. So as a I, as a high, it's kind of interesting actually because as a as a high schooler, I'm much more focused on having fun and sports and put that over school. So as a high schooler, I I did well. I obviously did not achieve my best, much to my parents' chagrin at that time, which didn't exactly prepare me well entering a more rigorous academic approach in, in college. Um, but it was something that I, I had to learn when I got to college. So, so you, you finished high school and you, you probably didn't have the best uh, study habits established and you chose a school to go to and you also played college football. When you chose a school, uh, how much was athletics and how much was academics? Purely athletics for me. University I went to was called McMurray University. At that time, we competed in NCAA Division II football, a school based out of Abilene, Texas. What led me there was essentially the athletics because they're able to offer me like a combined athletic and academic scholarship. And and what did you major in? Uh, majoring in biomedical science, a pretty standard major across a lot, what a lot of pre-med students ultimately do. 
stayed there for two years before I transferred to Trinity University and ultimately finished my major bachelor's of science in biology there. Why did you leave? So I left McMurray after two years of, of playing college football at a pretty small university in Abilene, Texas. It was it was time for a change of scenery for me. I, I no long was no longer interested in playing football. Yeah, I knew I wasn't going to the NFL. Knew ultimately that uh, my college degree was going to be what what ultimately set me up for for my career later in life. And uh, Trinity University in San Antonio is a much more prestigious university than McMurray was. And and what what was the competition, student competition? Kind of put it that way: uh, high school versus McMurray versus Trinity. This is a good question because in high school I felt like I wasn't really part of the competitive crowd. When I got to McMurray, I felt like I was I was basically at the at the top of my classes there in biology and chemistry. But once I got to Trinity, that 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 all changed. It was a much more uh, much more strenuous competition there, but I think it ultimately worked out for all of us because saying goes iron sharpens iron. So your athletic career is uh, is done. You've moved to Trinity. You now uh, know what you what you want to do, and at that point, I think that's where your dad had his accident. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about his treatment and what you saw from the people that were treating the doctors and, and the, um, the therapists that you saw that also helped to motivate you to move into the medical direction. To paint a little bit more of a picture for you, um, my dad was, was a competitive bodybuilder throughout his 20s and 30s, even at the age of 50 when ultimately around when the accident occurred, still in great shape, really muscular, uh, muscular, strong person. So after the accident, I remember the rapidness of the deterioration was so profound. I mean, I, it was really, it's really hard for me to even describe it. My dad, ultimately someone who, you know, a week before this accident is deadlifting over 400 pounds, uh, unable to even stand up for more than a few seconds before his, his blood pressure was dropping so fast that he would black out. Naturally, we're kind of turning to the, to his doctor for for support, both with his condition and, and then just emotional support as well. His surgeon and then ultimately the, the rehab doctor, the physiatrist, who ultimately saw him kind of over that the next month while he was hospitalized and then discharged the rehab facility, was able to answer our questions along the way, questions about prognosis, but also providing the kind of emotional support to us, helped guide that process for, for me and the rest of my family and him for a, a long stretch. For, it was almost a month before he was eventually discharged from that rehab rehab facility, and I think that kind of impact and all these kind of different aspects of knowing knowing the medicine side of this, knowing how to talk to us and communicate with us and console us, really interesting to me and piqued my interest even more in, into the specialty and to medicine in general. Thanks for sharing that, Nicholas. You're finishing up your studies at university and now now you've firmly established that you want to do medical school what was the process like in preparing your applications and preparing to uh, try and get into medical school right and this is a, a great question because this is i took a more non-traditional less linear path than a lot of students do where some students are coming in as a as freshmen knowing they want to do this whereas in my case it wasn't until the spring of my junior year when I'm deciding this. And at this point in time, a lot of students are applying to medical school. So I realized that I have about a year 
to kind of do things on top of my grades and school to make myself a competitive applicant. This meant volunteer experience at the local hospital, shadowing, like a more direct shadowing of a, of a physician, evidencing that, you know, you've sought out the opportunity to see what being a doctor really entails. And I was got involved in research at this time as well at Trinity University under one of my biology professors, where I was able to work on a, a biomedical bench research type project. These are kind of the big things that I did in a year span of time uh, to be, become a competitive applicant. So let's discuss the MCAT. MCAT is uh, obviously a, a pretty significant part of the application process. So tell me about preparing for the MCAT and taking that test. So well, I initially started going to a class, I think that met twice a week. And I think I made it to about three sessions before I thought this is a waste of my time and I would be so much more effective kind of studying by myself. What was the test like? Was I'm sure it was a pretty easy test, wasn't it? This is a good, good question because I felt like I prepared for it so well. Three of the four sections, I knew I was, I rocked them because anything on the test I had seen before, I had prepared for previously, I've done practice questions on where I was totally prepared. These were the biology questions, the chemistry questions, the psychology and sociology questions. There's a definitive right answer and then a bunch of wrong answers. Much easier to prepare for than that fourth section, which was a section entirely dedicated to, it's called the critical analysis and reading section, I believe, CARS where this is kind of function like like you would think of an English test, where you're, you're reading a passage and answering questions about a random li- passage of literature. And I struggled a, lo- a little bit more on that section, and I knew that was my weak area in my test, but ultimately I still did well enough to make it into medical school. So you put your applications in, and uh, it's a common application that goes into a lot of different different medical schools. Being a Texas resident, we had a separate application process. That state application was for public school, the public medical schools of Texas. Um, being a Texas resident, such that I was, I've largely pretty, pretty much only applied to Texas schools, kind of our, wow. our, our in-state tuition in Texas was, I mean, just night and day, so much more so much more affordable compared to other schools outside of Texas. Nicholas, what, what's, what was the cost difference for medical school in Texas versus some other other locations yeah so in, in texas and these are just kind of you know real ball, ballpark numbers each year is around twenty thousand in texas compared to most out-of-state schools were anywhere from 40 to fifty thousand dollars a year so it was almost half the cost as compared to going to a school out of state so it made it real easy for me to just apply in state and that's twenty thousand just for just for the tuition then you've got your roman board on top of that Correct. That was just for the school. That didn't cover any kind of living expenses, uh, renting an apartment, groceries, anything like that as well. Yeah. So you you, you wanted to focus on Texas. There was plenty of good uh, good options within Texas, but I'm sure you had preferences out of the dozen or so medical schools here. So how did you choose which ones were most preferable for, uh, for you? I applied to all of them, I believe which is what, what most students do. And they're going to take as, all the interview offers they get. So I got three interview offers. Ultimately, I based my decision on location and just kind of the gut feeling that I got during my interview day and my interview process. You're interviewing them to see if that's 
going to be the choice that that you would want to have, and they're interviewing you to see if they're going to offer you uh, a position within there. Correct. Yeah. So if you applied to, uh, applied to you know the dozen, did you get a chance to rank which ones, or do you just wait to see who's going to accept you? We have a thing in Texas called pre-matching. This is after you've interviewed at a place, and then in February um, is when you're ultimately required to rank, like we, like you kind of mentioned there. Um, the places that you interview at, you get to rank them one, two, and three, four, five, in terms of order of where you want to go. I think a week or two weeks later, the whole match algorithm runs itself where schools are ranking you, you're ranking schools, and for all the, all the applicants do this, all the schools do this, and they come up with this result known as the match. Um, you log in that morning and, and see where you matched, where you got accepted to. Tell me about that morning, Nicholas. What was that morning like? Yes. Yeah, so what was I guess what was that night's sleep like? I felt pretty comfortable. I was confident. My top choice was UT Health Science Center in San Antonio, closest to home in terms of the places where I interviewed at. There was still a little bit of uncertainty, kind of going to bed that night and the results released at eight AM the next morning. And I I remember I do remember logging in at you know eight oh one and frantically checking to see where 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 I matched to and um the kind of excitement that I got when I, I finally realized it was official and I was coming coming here in San, to San Antonio. Were you by yourself? Uh, was your family looking over your shoulder? I was by myself in my apartment, I think. No one was around me or anything, but I was excited and texted my parents and, and girlfriend. They were really excited for me as well. Uh, that, that was a, spe- a special morning, I'm sure. So you get done with your orientation and now you kind of go, you know, start in, start into classes. Was there a ceremony before or, uh, you know, kind of after you got started? We did do our white coat ceremony before classes started. Everyone can't wait for that day, that moment where they're bestowed upon them their first white coat. And so it's a whole ceremony. All of the students' families came, big picture opportunity, and it's when you the opportunity to receive your, your first ever white coat. It marks that beginning, kind of the beginning of, of the journey, so to speak. I, I can tell you that uh, as a parent, I've watched my kids graduate high school, college, medical school. I've been up in the stands watching that occur. And every time that it occurs, it kind of takes my breath away. It's something so significant and you know it's coming, but when it occurs, it's just a very impactful thing. You've had the opportunity to graduate from programs and things, and, and then you had the white coat ceremony. How did that feel? How did that rank? Did it register significantly with you? It is interesting that you bring that up because compared to my, this is only a few months after my college graduation, it's a kind of different type of ceremony because that college graduation is, it's at the end of the journey. It's a celebration of kind of, you made it, you know, you succeeded, you you accomplished what you set out to accomplish. This is the final, you crossed the finish line. That white coat ceremony was was a different type of ceremony. Like it was exciting, but it was different because it was kind of that start of the journey. It's a celebration of here you are at the beginning of your of your journey, so to speak. So it was a different kind of ceremony in that in that point where instead of looking back on on college and you know what you've been through to the graduation, you're kind of looking ahead into the unknown to kind of see what's about what's about to happen now over the next four years. So now you are you're there. You've gotten to the point that you've been working for for a long period of time. So now let's jump in, jump into the first year. What happens in the first year? 
that first year at our school is is definitely i think arguably the most difficult year so we get kind of thrown in the fire so to speak we're taking some of the more difficult uh, classes so these are when we go back into the basic biochemistry microbiology immunology all in the first semester of medical school on top of this our kind of gross anatomy and my school does it a, a kind of a unique perspective here where we didn't do any kind of arms, legs, anatomy. It was just the head, torso, neck, pelvis, on top of these the basically more rigorous uh, under uh, classes. And then at the same time, we began our clinical skills module as well. These are the when you're learning the more uh, type of physical exam techniques and interviewing patients, these type of skills. So we had all three of these things kind of going on at the same time, starting in day one. And this is the only time, that was the only time during those first two years where getting pulled in three different directions between our actual, like our class class, our clinical skills class, and our, that gross anatomy class as well, all, all three at the same time. So clinical skills, how is that structured versus the gross anatomy? Is one with the cadaver, the other one isn't? How does, how does that work? So our gross, gross anatomy class, generally we would... It would be in the afternoons, Monday and Thursday, about twice a week. We meet twice a week. We would start off with a one-hour anatomy lecture where we're going to kind of go over what we're going to be dissecting that day. This could be you know, structures, nerves, their innervation. So not just the structures, but also what do these structures do? How do they function in the body as well? After that, we would eventually go down, essentially go down to our cadavers. Like we talked about our the gross lab and spend two to three hours following uh, have various instruction manuals and uh, videos to watch and a number of uh, anatomy tutors to help us with the dissections. And that was kind of the general design of the day-to-day, -day, the gross anatomy component. And that clinical skills component was more where we, we would come in and also kind of watch a video, review what the exam is. Generally, we'd have a standardized patient where we would practice on and uh, practice kind of interviewing and then performing the exam, taking turns, each student kind of performing the components of that exam on the standardized patient and kind of learn what we're looking for with, with that exam and uh, kind of pertinent findings for the exam as well. We're very fortunate that some people donate their remains to science to be able to use uh, for education. When you were introduced to the cadaver, what did you what did you think at that point? Um, what was you know, what was the impact of of being able to work on someone? I mean, there was a big, pretty big moment, definitely for me, the first time we, the first time you actually witnessed the cadaver there, because this is it's the the most human like form that it's in. It hasn't been dissected. The cadaver still seemed the most human, and the first time we actually start making cuts to it was, it was. Definitely, definitely felt meaningful that it was everyone almost felt a sense of reservation that you don't really want to do this and you're having to get out of your comfort zone and kind of facing those fears and anxieties of, of what's going on in your head. You know, just the whole nature of actually dissecting a, a human body was difficult. And the, the first moment, you know, the first time we did that, we these kind of thoughts went through our head. As you're going through... Uh, you are also being evaluated. Talk to me about the evaluation process. How are you um, graded? 
this was really different, difficult adjustment, probably the most difficult adjustment for me coming into medical school. And it took me a while before I really, really hit my stride in this. And that was because in medical school, every single answer on any kind of exam is purely a right or wrong. There is no, no, none of the short answer of what am I thinking? You're either right or you're wrong. And oftentimes there's a, there's a best answer and you have to know what, the, what that best answer is. How, how many students in your class? We had some of the largest medical, medical school classes across the country. I think we started with about 220 students. So after the first semester, do you recall how many left? We might have lost 10, between 10 and 20 students. You know, our school was really trying to push people to make it through that first year because that first semester is really tough at our school and kind of hopefully and provide them resources to you know make adjustments and keep improving. But I think after that first year, you know, maybe about 10 students took a year off or, or dropped out or ultimately found a different kind of career path at that point. First year is, uh, as you described it, with uh, classroom learning as well as uh, cadaver and, and skills. Uh, second year similar. Yeah, so our second year still a lot of a lot of classroom learning, the same model of clinical skills. Second year generally a little bit more lighter because there's not that anatomy component that was there that first semester or first year. Um, but towards this end of the second year, you start thinking about the big test between second and third year. It's called step one. This is where you're tested on all the knowledge that you, anything is fair game, essentially, between across all of the first and second year. Every, everything that you learn is, culminates to one test. It's called step one. And towards the end of the second year, it's generally when students start thinking about the process of studying for step one and, and making a plan and kind of what all that entails. The first two years, primarily classroom not clinical. You're, you're not seeing patients up until that point. Right. Purely classroom. And I, can, can we expand on classroom a little bit more? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because one of the ways it's changed a lot here in the last 10 or 15 years is that classroom component. All of our lectures were recorded. So attendance was large. There were some lectures where it was mandatory, but for the predominantly it was not mandatory. You had the option to watch the lecture at your own time. You didn't have to go. You could watch it on 1.5 speed. It's really up to you, what you how you wanted to handle it. So the idea of of coming to the class and, and taking your notes down during the lecture, not a lot of students actually ended up doing that. We found other ways that we thought were a lot more efficient, saved a lot of time, and helped us learn the material a lot better and, and helped that material that we learned stick a lot longer than that the old way of classroom learning where we're going to a classroom, listening to a lecture and taking, you know, taking notes and kind of studying the notes before an exam. That, that's really interesting because one-way communication is one thing when you're just listening to a lecture, but two-way communication within the classroom is valuable. But it sounds like most of the, the um, communication that you're getting from lectures was in larger lecture hall so it really was just one way coming coming in your direction exactly and that was one of the reasons why i had ultimately by the end of my second year was never going to class ever was never participating in any lectures because i didn't find them useful there was no kind of back and forth it was just here's the material we can lecture to you at you know kind of we're going to lecture off the slides this way of learning didn't work for me 
quite frankly, the majority of our class chose not to kind of learn the material this way either. Oh, that's that's really fascinating. So, a part of uh, part of this is also learning from each other. So, how how did you build the camaraderie between you? How did you establish those 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 pathways to learn from each other? Right. So, this is one of the is is kind of a drawback of this method of everyone kind of splitting up and learning on their own. Is there there wasn't too much of that camaraderie of learning with each other. During the bulk of the, the module, so let's say it's a six-week module, just doing a lot of stuff on my own, kind of learning on my own time. But then towards the end of the module, getting closer to that final exam, I had like, you know, kind of one friend that I would study with. We kind of ramped that up more kind of towards the end of the, the module before the exam. Um, that way we kind of sharpened up our weak areas with each other before the, before the test. Really interesting. So some people have establish really strong relationships from their high school friends, some from their college friends, and some are closer to people at medical school. How would you characterize your relationships with uh, different people? For me personally, I am still definitely closest with my high school friends, actually. Technology has made it really easy for everyone to kind of stay in touch through social media and kind of group text messaging. It's really easy to stay in contact with each other. My college experience wasn't really traditional. The fact that I kind of transferred between my sophomore and junior year, transferred universities. It seems like a lot of students make the lasting college connections during that first semester, that freshman year of, of college. I didn't really make those kind of college connections. And even in medical school, it didn't really afford me too many opportunities to kind of make those connections with, with my peers in medical school. I do have friends that I'm really close with and see myself maintaining that kind of relationship that we have you know, post-medical school, uh, but definitely not so much. Some of my classmates have made the, more of those, more of an effort and then more of those kind of connections and relationships during medical school. So let's talk about about competition. Are test scores publicly uh, displayed? Uh, do you know where you rank? I mean, how, how, does, that, how does that work? <laughs> Naturally, the environment is definitely one of competition because character traits that you have to have to, to be a doctor Obviously, it doesn't apply to everyone, but being competitive is something a lot of us, a trait a lot of us share. Scores are not you know, publicly announced or displayed for all to see. There's a, it's a, there's a lot of apprehension and, and hesitation about test scores or you know, grades with, amongst the students because so much of what you're set out to accomplish in medical school rides on these grades and these scores. Are things graded on the curve in medical school? No, they're not. At our school, they were not, not part of the curve. The tests that we took, there's everything's multiple choice, kind of you know, black and white, right and wrong. They tailor the tests where they can kind of make percentages of students who are going to get A's, B's, and C's based on the types of questions they want to ask. In my experience, I thought it was pretty easy to get a B in a class, but extremely difficult to get an A. If you learn all the high yield information, you can get, you can get a B in, in a class. But there's always those 10, 10 or 15 questions out of 100 on that test where you're asking you the most random type details. To get the A, you have to get these type of questions right. At the same time, it's like that trade-off where you can work so much harder. Maybe you're going to get those five, you know, five or 10 questions right that's going to set you apart from the B to the A. You might do these and still end up missing those questions anyway. Yeah, and, and then there's the, the yield question is also kind of tied to the retention question. If you can cram and, and get that B, is that is that better than absorbing that information 
over a longer period of time and retaining that information. When you're in college and you're, you're, you're taking an art history class, you know, the retention part isn't as critical as some of, some of the issues that you're dealing with in medical school. So I would imagine being able to study to the goal of retaining it is much more important than studying to the goal of getting a grade. Right. And you would, you know, really hope that a lot of students kind of value that retention over, over the, you know, being able to cram and end up with a better score aspect. And, you know, ultimately you're evaluated based on, on the numbers you get and the scores you achieve. It doesn't always work out like that, even though we would always, you know, kind of like it to. All right, let's get out of the classroom now. Let's go, go to years three and four of, of medical school. Tell me about years three and four. Uh, I think this is pretty similar standard across all, all medical schools. There's kind of eight core clerkships internal medicine, surgery, neurology, emergency medicine, psychiatry, family medicine, pediatrics, and obstetrics and gynecology. During your third year, you're going to spend each time r- rotating through, you know, working with a various team, a team of residents and doctors. And so these are kind of the core clerkships that we're going to rotate through. What you need to learn is totally different from the classroom because this is kind of the real world application of what it's like to be a doctor now. And like in the classroom, there is always a right and wrong answer. As a doctor, not so much. There are a thousand different ways you can go about being effective and successful as a doctor. You're kind of learning these these nuances. And as charged as medical students, we're, we're kind of slowly introduced to this process of what we call assessments and plans. Our assessment entails like seeing there's a patient, you know, we're getting their history of, of their illness. Why are they presenting to us as a doctor? Our, our physical exam, you know, when we examine them, what do we see? Also draw in, you know, additional information. So sometimes there's another family member that shares something, we gather all this information and come up with an assessment. So we sum all that up in two to three lines, distill it way down into our assessment. And then after that, we think of our plan. So we look at this patient with our assessment, come up with a list of problems, and then with our assessment plan, so make a problem list. And then basically, what are what are our answers going to be to each of their problems on that problem list? Um, and that's kind of that known as the plan portion of of being a doctor. And these are this is new to us as third year students, and something you get really good at. That's essentially what it is, what it means to be a doctor and how they think and learn. And that's kind of what we learned there during that third year. I think you're also, during that third year, looking at different specialties and saying, this one doesn't fit, this one does fit, this is an interest level, this is something that I'm not interested in. Is that correct? That's correct. That's part of the process as well, to allow people to assess what their interest level is and ultimately what direction they want to take for the residency and and their career. Right. And there's no better way to kind of make sure and kind of learn about these specialties than when you're actually on team on that service where you're kind of getting to see that specialty. You're basically a part of that specialty almost as a medical student. And it's during this time where a lot of students are, we can kind of preferentially rank and choose the specialties that we think we're interested in towards that beginning Mm -hmm. of the third year. And then after you've been able to rotate, getting to be a part of a team on that service, how a lot of students you know, come up with the decision of what specialty they, they want to pursue. So it's really coming into focus at the end of the third year. You're making your decisions based on experience you've had and, and the direction that you want to go. 
but then then at the end of the third year you're you've got another big uh big step another large test what does that what does that entail step it's funny you say step because this is this is called step two the real, real original name in these uh medical school tests for us here you know step one step two <laughs> so step two is just like step one but it's kind of more geared with a more clinical aspect, a little bit more clinical than step one. You take an, uh, take an exam toward, you know, towards the end of the clerkship. And you do that for all eight of those clerkships that we, you know, we kind of talked about. Step two evaluates you, the stuff you learn across all eight of those clerkships and those eight tests that you took. So just kind of like step one, it's that comprehensive test evaluating you as a student from a little bit more clinical type approach to see if you've learned across these, the, across the board, really generally across all these specialties. Because in the fourth year, this is where we, you know, kind of transition and you're allowed a little bit more freedom and flexibility to pick what you, pick the courses that you want to take. And often when most students kind of are choosing courses that are pertinent to the, to the field or specialty that they're going to pursue with in residency. So you're midway through your fourth year. Uh, you've established what area that you want want to go in there there are programs to train you further you know, residency programs that are kind of spread throughout the country and right now we're in covid times uh, so you know we've got you know limited opportunities to go and physically visit visit places but you know where the training programs are how do you assess the training programs and and what's the process for applying for different training programs yeah, this process is already really difficult before our current circumstances here with COVID. During our, our fourth year, you you have the opportunity to pursue what are called away rotations, or also you know kind of known as audition rotations. You can find a one of these kind of desired programs and reach out to them. You know, hey, I'm interested in this in this program, and you can apply to do what's called an, that away rotation there which are generally about a month, you pick up and move to, uh, to the place where that program is. It could be a different state, different city within your state. You go all the way across the country and figure out how to live there for a month where you're you know, working with a team around doctors in the field that you want to go into that are in charge of that program that you're going to ultimately apply for uh, in residency. And this is what a lot of students do. They'll do generally, you know, anywhere between one, one to three kind of away rotations. And it kind of serves a twofold approach because you're getting to see the place for yourself, talk to the residents, hear what they have to say about the program in person. You're able to see the facilities, hospitals, city you're going to live in, in person, talk to the doctors that you're going to work with who are going to be in charge of teaching you as a resident in person. You're going to notice that I kept emphasizing the in-person part of this because this is all the things that we've lost here kind of as a fourth year student during the pandemic times. Most schools have essentially canceled all away rotations. Um, so they're not accepting students, they're not even allowing their students to pursue traveling to do the, that away rotation, which is really difficult whenever you're applying to 30 or 40, 50 programs as, as a residency. They're, they're not able to kind of assess you know, which students really want to come here Generally, they, they know if you took the time and energy to do that away or audition rotation, they know you're serious about coming there. That's something we've lost this year. Other, th other things we've lost is ability to kind of talk with residents, see these places where we're ultimately going to be training for anywhere from four to seven years and kind of get that in-person experience before making our decision. 
And it's, these are kind of big, huge things that we're, that we're missing out as fourth years that most students don't, that are so, super and you know, so important when it comes to making your decision about where you want to go for residency. So you got two things. You got you know, num- number one, where you're going to get the best training, and number two, geographically, where you're going to be, because you know we're not all free agents out there. We've got uh, wives, girlfriends, family situations, and not knowing where you're going to be or whether you're going to be comfortable where where you're going to be is a really difficult thing for somebody to be dealing with when you're not able, as you said, to be there in person to do it. How have you viewed that? How have you managed the process and defining where you want to go? It's been difficult. Ultimately, when you choose where you go for residency, you're going to apply there. Uh, all students kind of enter this database called ERAS or Electronic Residency Application Service, where you submit some documents in your medical school transcript, and a short bio and personal statement and pick different programs across the country and it ships your application out to them. They receive hundreds to thousands of these applications from students across the country and decide which ones they like, interview these students. Same match process unfolds again in March, a couple months after that process happens. So how I've kind of navigated the process personally is gotten interviews at a lot of places where I've never been before, which is exciting because I'm looking for somewhere new. I've done a lot of searching the internet for what people have to say about living there. But we do get a chance kind of during these interview days where kind of the night before schools offer virtual kind of social hours with residents. So you get, you definitely get ample opportunity to ask residents a lot of questions about the program, you know, the city itself to answer some of the uncertainties you have. But on the, you know, on the flip side, it's great that you're getting the chance to ask these residents these questions. But I've found personally that it's, it's really hard to to get them to talk about kind of the cons and, of, and the bad sides of, of the city they live in and the program they're at, things that you might not, you might only pick up on if you got, you've gotten the chance to be there in person. And I think this is a, that's a huge kind of unknown. Obviously, these residents, they only want to tell you all the good things about their program. They want you to come there. And so it's more difficult to kind of flush and tease out some concerning factors that might ultimately prevent you from, from making that choice. So on these hangouts, do you have multiple people on those hangouts or is it one-on-one? The more successful ones are like the more type of small group where there's you know, two or three applicants with one or two residents and get a chance to answer your, ask your questions and get good answers to your questions. Some of the other ones though have been 10 applicants here in this virtual room and you know, one or two residents answering questions and you feel like you don't get the chance to ask your question and you're, get, you're getting a canned answer, too, because right. they don't want to put anything negative out there, as opposed to if you're, if you're sitting across from them having a cup of coffee, you know, tell me what it's really like. You may get a different answer. Yeah, yeah. And then even just getting to kind of see the residents interact in person and their demeanors or tone of, you know, just like even their like tone of voice or anything, these kind of things, the in-person you know, social cues that you might be able to make a better assessment about someone you're definitely getting, you're missing out on that. So the match process is, is a competitive process as well. There are some specialties that are, that are more competitive than others. And uh, there's also the, the number of seats, the slots that are open for different residencies as well. And then, and then you've got you know, the whole competition of who's at the top of their class and or what are their test grades like for, for the step one, step two, and their general transcripts. So this whole match process is, again, another computer algorithm, just like with medical school. 
Um, but you have also had the opportunity to rank. So when you applied to medical school, you said there was about a dozen in Texas. How many do you apply for for residency? Have you have and have you already done that? And you don't have to tell us which ones, but you know, have you already done it? So I've I've already applied. The question you asked is a burning question that I asked our home is my home institution's program director physical medicine and rehabilitation, so the residency I'm going into. That's a great question. How many should I apply? Because what a lot of students have is we have data, and what this data looks at is the 10, 5 to 10 years, all these previous applicant data, where they look at what's the number of places you need to apply to to get X number of interviews to have a 95% success rate of matching to a program. It was really thrown off this year. It was hard to kind of draw upon past experience and past data and apply them to these kind of circumstances. And it, it depends on the specialty also. Some of the, le- the less competitive specialties I've known students have only applied anywhere from five to 10 programs. And they've known exactly where they want to go and get the interviews. And they know they're going to get to match in those schools to people who are less competitive applicants and more competitive specialties applying to 70 or 80 programs, hoping to get three or four interviews. That's an answer that's very specific to the, each applicant. To give you a, a more ballpark type answer, I would say anywhere from 30 to 60 places on average. And what you really want to accomplish is the number of interviews you have. Some people might only have to apply to 30 to get 10 interviews. Some people need to apply to 80 places to get 10 interviews, kind of based on how competitive you are. And you can figure out how competitive you are, you know, basically talking to people associated with the dean's office. People have academic advisors have kind of helped you steer you on this path of how many to apply to. But generally, I think most people aim for 10 interviews or more. Some who get much less, some who get way more. And once you get to around 10 interviews, you can say pretty sure with like about a 95% chance that you're going to match at that point. Nicholas, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think would be interesting for our audience? There's not really a standard general medical medical school experience, maybe like there was or used to be or what people think there is, and that there's not one way everyone does everything, and there's not one right way to do everything. There are a whole bunch of different ways where you can kind of make it from the beginning to the end. I think coming into medical school, even throughout medical school, figuring out which path is the path for you to success I think that was the kind of biggest challenge of, of all of medical school was there's, you know, maybe 20 different paths that you can take to make it through medical school. Figuring out which one's right for you, that was the biggest challenge for me, I think, in medical school. Is there a misconception about medical school when you're talking to friends, family, that people just don't understand about medical school? Personally, I think so. And I think a lot of it has to do with kind of a, an outdated view of, of what you think and what you imagine medical school to be. Once I've kind of talked, figured out that path that worked for me in terms of making it through school and learning how to kind of balance the school side of things and personal life and hobbies and everything. Personally, I didn't find the, the school you know, super difficult. Not that it wasn't, but it was very doable, very navigatable. I was still able to kind of do the things I liked outside of school. It was not this kind of all-consuming thing that I think a lot of people might think that medical school is. Once you kind of figure out the path and kind of figure out how you can succeed here, treat it as kind of one part of your life and kind of still maintain the other aspects of your life that are important to you. Well, you've got another few months to go and match day comes in, in March. Yep. 
Wish you all the success in matching the program that's going to give you the best opportunity to build your career. Thank you. We've got three more months to go here, so I'm pretty excited to kind of see what, where that's going to take me. I hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look at Nicholas's journey and what his medical school experience has been like. A few of my takeaways from the conversation. First, I was surprised to hear that classroom learning was optional, and most students reviewed the material online. And all this was prior to COVID. And I, I really don't know how I feel about this. I can hear my son right now saying, okay, Boomer. Uh, but I know from my business experience, so many positive things happen by just being together. Things that you couldn't plan on or things you couldn't know in advance. And we also talked on socially, um, I think there's some lost opportunities there as well. I think this is just something to keep an eye on. Secondly, Nicholas is very analytical. He mentioned that once he figured it out, it really became quite doable. Now, this may not be as apparent to others, uh, but he did mention that uh, the school does everything, everything it can to make students successful, especially in that critical first year. And, you know, I've heard this from most of the physicians I've spoken to, that the support really is there for these medical students. Finally, COVID. Now, all students today have had challenges, including medical students. Choosing a specialty and a residency is a big deal. Yeah, I, I always told my kids to choose a college where when you changed your major, they had that one too. Now, it's much different with residents. Changing specialties once you start down a path is pretty tough. Nicholas was lucky. He knew the specialty he wanted when he arrived at medical school. And then it was reinforced when he did rotations. I hope his fellow graduating seniors get the help and guidance that they will need to make the best career choice. They deserve it. Now for your action item. There are 154 MD programs and 38 DO programs in the U.S. What do you know about them? In the show notes, I have links to a few websites that will give you information on where they are and some inter interesting facts about medical school enrollment, costs, and curriculum. Take a look around these websites and become a little bit more familiar with medical colleges. It'll help you demystify them and get you closer to understanding your customer. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device podcast, as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard. Be kind.